Welcome to the First Apostolic Church Podcast. Our church mission is to love as God loves, showing compassion to every soul, thus winning those souls and equipping them to be sent out to plant and to harvest. Thank you for joining us today, and we hope that you are blessed by today's podcast. Thank you this morning for taking that opportunity, hallelujah, to consider giving, consider giving. We are still in our discipleship series this year. This has become a a year-long discipleship series. But something that I do like about this, I I have a a document on my computer that... um, I have that's kind of like labeled annual topics that in my personal opinion as a pastor that I think that uh, should be in some regard if at all possible touched upon within a calendar year for the church because things that we need to go back to and uh, the discipleship series has really touched many if not almost all of those areas that as a pastor I think that I deem as important that must be rehearsed in the ears of the people over and over like repentance and baptism and uh, you know uh, faith and grace and all these different type of things Uh, and so this morning we're going to continue with this in the word of the Lord we're going to be considering this morning the Godhead going to be considering the Godhead uh, today and probably for uh, the next few the next few Sundays Uh, Many of these things are designed, or I should say, kind of put forth as a solitary lesson. But folks, let me tell you, it is an impossibility. Uh, Somebody better than me would have to pull that off. Uh, The micro machine man that could speak a little faster or something, I don't know. Maybe it's just a a downfall on my part. But nonetheless, we're going to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter number 5. And read a verse of scripture from there. And we're also going to read from 1 Timothy chapter number 3. So 2 Corinthians chapter number 5 and verse number 19. Again, uh, one of my most favorite verses of scripture in the word of the Lord. To wit, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of a reconciliation. First Timothy chapter number three and verse number 16. The Bible says, and this is a good one too. They're all good. It's not like there's any bad ones. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, Preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. Again, we're going to discuss uh, the Godhead this morning. We're going to do this for the next few weeks. I want the Lord to touch our hearts and our minds here today. All right? Touch our hearts and minds today. Whenever Timothy says, great is the mystery of godliness... A mystery is something that may be concealed, but at any moment in time can be revealed. There is, let me state it like this, there is no longer a mystery to the godliness. From the Old Testament and as Jesus began to walk as a man upon the earth, 
we understand there was still yet some cloaking of a mystery about who he was and godliness, so to speak. But there is no more mystery because God was manifested in the flesh. All right. And so there came a revelation. And so I'm praying today that God would help our own hearts and minds with with enlightenment and revelation of the word of the Lord. Amen. And grant understanding this morning. Father, I come to you today. I'm so thankful, Lord, today to be here. Thankful, God, to be standing in this house. And though, Lord, we're not yet in person altogether, being able to actually stand here, Lord, and and teach the word of the Lord. I pray God bless your people. I pray God for a spirit of revelation, understanding, enlightenment. God, to come upon their hearts, their minds, help us to lean in. God, as we learn of you, in the lovely name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that I pray, amen and amen. The church say amen. God bless you this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. The Godhead, the Godhead. To wade in these waters, talking about God this morning, uh, we must uh, begin first and foremost considering uh, the persona of God, if I could call it that. And that is this, and Scripture relays this, and there are some Scriptures today that will be on your screen. There will others that will not. Uh, Because some of them are just some touchstones. We're just kind of going to hit and run. But we must understand, first and foremost, that God is an invisible spirit. That is absolutely essential to our understanding of the Godhead and our understanding of this revelation that unfolds in Scripture, that God is an invisible spirit that cannot be seen by uh, the human eye unless God chooses to manifest himself in some measure, in some way. Uh, you'll remember from our series in the Gospel of John right now, John 4, 24, as Jesus is having a conversation with the Samaritan woman at the well, it emphatically says that God is a spirit. And uh, in the Greek language, there is no definitive article A there. It is God is spirit. It's not as though he's one of many a spirit, but he is spirit. And they that worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. The Bible also tells us, again, these are some that won't be on your screen, just little touchstones unless he puts them up there. In 1 Timothy 1.17, it speaks in these terms. Now unto the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God. John also writes in 1 John 4 and verse 12, telling us as it's spoken in other places of Scripture as well, that no man hath seen God at any time. He is an invisible spirit. But another aspect of the persona of God that we must understand today to get our footing in this study is that there are uh, certain aspects Uh, of God that's beyond our capability of understanding. There are certain aspects of God that's beyond our capability of understanding. If you'll look at Romans chapter 11, verses 33 through 34, and yes, we have all kinds of scripture today. Uh, The Bible says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. There is some depth to the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How, look at it now, how unsearchable 
are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord? That is, yeah, who knows the mind of the Lord, right? No one does. No one knows the true intent in mind of God or understands all of God's ways or why God does certain things or why God approaches a certain scenario like this one time for this, this person and approaches it totally different in another individual's life. And we scratch our head and it's just like, you know, shouldn't there just be a standard for the way that God handles a certain circumstance or dilemma in each individual's lives? And so there's certain, the, the depth and the knowledge of God, we cannot plunge as, as a human being to the depth of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. His ways in many regards are past finding out. There are times when things are said and done. We can look over our shoulder and maybe have some understanding, but there's other things that when we look back, we still cannot understand all the intricacies and the ways and the processes of God. Who can know the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? No one has counseled him. No one has come alongside him. All right? And so uh, we, we can't necessarily define God and his character and his nature and his ways by human thought alone or human idea alone uh, because our understanding of God uh, mostly, uh, I can't compare God to me, all right, in, in many respects. But uh, God, our understanding of him must be based in solely upon what God has said about himself. In the infallible word of the Lord, the Bible. The Bible says in Isaiah 55 verses 8 through 9, uh, verses scripture that we lean on and go to many times. God says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. And neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Uh, the little phrase or saying that used to be said was this. If we understood everything that God did, then I guess we would be God. We understood everything that God did, then I guess we would be God. So it's okay to have those moments that, you know, I just don't understand what God's doing in this or not doing in this or doing about this. Uh, that's okay uh, because he's God. Uh, he's sovereign. He has power to do what he desires and wishes to do. And uh, as humanity, our problem is this. We have a difficult time whenever God doesn't include us in on what he's up to. Right? Uh, we have that just as a problem in humanity alone uh, when we just don't know what's going on, right? Whether it just be in our own personal lives or with each other, but uh, particularly with God. He doesn't always include us in. Uh, we get the final result sometimes. The Bible says we've had this in our gospel study of John, John 5, 39. Search the scriptures, for in them ye think or you realize ye have life. He says, God says, Jesus says, they, the scriptures, are they which testify of me. And so if we want a uh, as well as rounded understanding and view and concept of God that we could or should have, then we must consult the word of the Lord. 
We must consult the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. And so that is, uh, in essence, the persona of God, a God uh, that is an invisible spirit uh, that has aspects, his ways and stuff, uh, beyond our mind's comprehension and understanding and our revelation of him found in his word. But with that being said concerning the persona of God, let's also understand that in our world today and throughout time, there have been various perspectives and viewpoints on the persona of God. Now, I'm not necessarily saying scriptural perspectives. I'm saying there are viewpoints human viewpoints concerning the persona of God. And again, we'll just hit on a few of these, but for instance, one, there is a viewpoint in our world concerning the idea that the belief there is no God. Atheism, that there is no God. The psalmist even touched on this a little bit. And again, these are the psalmist's words, not my personal words, but the scripture says, the fool hath said in his heart that there is no God. There is another viewpoint in our world today, agnosticism, that prevails in the world as well. And the belief of, of the agnostic is this. They believe that God is unknown and for that matter is unknowable. Cannot be known. Unknown and unknowable. Again, we take our, our cue from Scripture. The Bible says in Isaiah 43 and verse number 10, it says, ye are my witnesses, saith the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that ye may know, this is the Lord speaking, that ye may know and believe me. So he's letting us know, you, you can know and believe God and look and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, neither shall there be after me. Jeremiah comes alongside Isaiah and harmonizes the same truth in Jeremiah 24 and 7. And I will give them, look, this is what the Lord is saying. I will give them a heart to know me. I'll give them a heart to know me. That I am the Lord and they shall be my people and I will be their God. For they shall return unto me with their whole heart. God says, I will give them a heart to know me. Let me say today that in reality... Every person, and I say this all-inclusive, every person is on a God search. Every human being that's been born in this world of whatever nation, creed, or skin color is on a God search because God has created man and has given him a heart to know God, to search to endeavor to find God. That's the reason why people, uh, you know, people of philosophy and great thinkers, even in New Testament scripture of the Greeks, people were in that mode of trying to find what they called the meaning of life. Right? It is, it, is the, it is the question and the thought pattern that uh, philosophers and people are, are still yet today constantly mulling over in, in their mind. I'll tell you what the search of the meaning of life is. It's a God search. It's a God search. And so God has given mankind a tendency to look for something meaningful beyond themselves. 
Look for something meaningful beyond themselves. He's given them a heart to know him. There's another viewpoint of God within the world uh, now and even past, and that is pantheism. And that is the belief that God or God's nature uh, is in the force throughout universe. Uh, that God, that God is nature itself. It's the mass and the matter, the wind, the fire, the water, the pantheism. God, God's in that rock. God's in that twig. God's, you know, just this this pantheism idea concerning God that He is the forces of the universe. All right. And God is the force, of course, behind everything that was created. But nonetheless, the belief that that is the, that is the essence of God. The Bible says in Deuteronomy chapter number 4, and uh, I'm going to skip through a few of these verses, but we'll start with verse 15, and you can watch me as I skip around a little bit there, Brother Alex. The Bible says, Take ye therefore good heed unto yourselves, for ye saw no manner of similitude, meaning image or idol, on the day that the Lord spake unto you in Horeb, which was Sinai, out of the midst of the fire. Whenever God came to speak to them from Horeb, he said, whenever you were standing there and there was the smoke and the lightning and the thundering and you heard the voice of God, said you did not see a similitude. You did not see an image. You did not see any type uh, of physical uh, expression, if you will, as far as a person of God. He said, lest ye corrupt yourselves and make you a graven image the similitude of any figure the likeness of male or female the likeness of any beast that is on the earth the likeness of any winged fowl that flieth in the air the likeness of anything that creepeth upon the ground the likeness of any fish that is in the waters boy he's really covering many any of the waters beneath the earth unless thou lift up thine eyes into heaven and when thou seest look now here it is it's speaking about these forces of nature the planetary bodies he said lest Thou lift up thine eyes into heaven, and when thou seest the sun and the moon and the stars and even all the hosts of heaven, shouldest be driven to worship them and serve them. Right? Because we're not bowing down to the sun. We're not bowing down to the moon. All right? We're not bowing down to a beast of the field, a fish of the sea. He says a little further down, he says, Take heed unto yourselves, lest ye forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you. And make you a graven image. So take heed lest you would make a graven image. Or the likeness of anything which the Lord thy God hath forbidden thee. For the Lord thy God is a consuming fire, even a jealous God. Because God is an invisible spirit. And that's what uh, the writer here, Moses of Deuteronomy, is conveying. He's invisible. There was no similitude. There was no image when he came up on Mount Horeb and spoke to you. And so don't be erecting something to a fish or to a goat or to a calf or to the sun or to the moon, any graven image. As a matter of fact, we have read before, I believe it's in the book of Exodus, that one of the things that God spoke to the people is that even whenever they made their altars, they were to be simple altars, they were to be made of earth, or they were to be made of unhewn stone. And with purpose, God said, you make the altar of unhewn stone because he didn't want them to take a, a chisel and a mallet of any form and begin to chisel the stone lest they be tempted to make that altar into some form or some similitude and kneel down there to worship God, all right? That there would be no conception of their own mind of what they thought the form of God took or was. There's another viewpoint 
throughout the world and from ages past and that is polytheism that is the idea of believing in many gods or more than one god Uh, we see that whenever uh, the apostle Paul visited Mars Hill in Acts chapter number 17 that this is something no doubt that surfaces even in the scripture Uh, he said as he passed by there uh, in the area of Athens and Mars Hill that he seen an altar there were several that they had scattered there but there was an altar unto the quote-unquote unknown God because uh, the the Greeks and the philosophers of that day didn't want to miss any God all right Uh, among the several that they were revering and worship. And whenever uh, the apostle began to speak to them, he said, I want to declare unto you that unknown God, amen, that you have an altar built to. And so the belief in more than one God, the Bible says in Psalms 96 and verse 5, for all the gods of the nations, look at it now, for all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord hath made the heavens. 1 Corinthians 8 and verse number 4, kind of diving into that verse, we know Important here, Paul writing to the church at Corinth, we know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is none other God but one. So with all these other viewpoints, there is another viewpoint that has scriptural precedence, and that is monotheism. That is monotheism, the belief that there is but one God. Now, these scriptures are not going to be before you because I'm just kind of going to hit through them, okay? And there's no way he's going to be able to keep up with me. If he does, then uh, the Spirit of the Lord is upon him. But nonetheless, the Deuteronomy 6 and 4, which is near and dear to the heart of the Jews. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Deuteronomy 4 and verse 35. Unto thee it was shewed that thou mightest know that the Lord, he is God. There is none else beside him. Isaiah 43 and verse 10, ye are my witnesses, saith the Lord, that ye may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God form, neither shall there be after me. Isaiah 44 verses 6 and 8 contain, thus saith the Lord, I am the first and I am the last, and beside me there is no God. It also says there is, there is there, the question is, is there a God beside me? He answers and says, yea, there is no God. I know not any. Isaiah 45, verses 5 through 6, I am the Lord and there is none else. There is no God beside me. That they may know from the rising of the sun, from the, from the west, that there is none else beside me. I am the Lord and there is none else. Isaiah Isaiah 45, verses 21 and 22, and I'm skipping in these verses a little bit. Who hath declared this from ancient time? Have not I the Lord? And there is no God else. There is no God else beside me. A just God and Savior, there is none beside me. Look unto me and be ye saved. All the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is none else. Folks, there is, there is something, there's a, there's a little pattern going on here in these collective the verses of scripture, Isaiah 46 and 9. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is none else. I am God and there is none like me. Malachi 2 and verse number 10. Have we not all one Father? Hath not one God created 
us. Ephesians 4 and 6, there is one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. James 2, 19, thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. But devils also believe and tremble. Folks, there is a pattern here. I'm looking at one Lord. I'm looking beside him there is none else. There's no God beside me. Hallelujah. All these, oh, he knows not another. We have one Father. One Father has created us. One God has created us over and over again. And so that is the monotheistic belief of there being but one God that we base upon the infallible word of God that has been handed amen unto us. Can someone say amen? Hallelujah. So when we talk about this one God in the uh, Old Testament, we talk about this one God in the Old Testament, and we talk about um, God revealing himself unto the people of the Old Testament. And uh, there's a little slide here, the one God of the Old Testament that would have had his name, and you might not have it for me, but uh, that had his name as uh, Yahweh, uh, the ineffable name of the Lord. Uh, the Jews, of course, totally honor this. As a matter of fact, they won't speak it as Yahweh. They might say Yah and Way, or they might just, there's a lot of different substitutes that they may put in for this uh, Yahweh. And I, I have on your screen, if it, you can see it, uh, not just the Yahweh, but also the Hebrew of it. And uh, uh, they'll, they'll substitute Adonai in there, Hashem. They'll substitute, uh, the, some call it the, tetragrammaton which it is known by and and so uh, they will use all kinds of different substitutes for this because it's uh, the holiness of it is so revered sometimes they'll just call uh, the lord the holy and the blessed one and again there are a variety of things and you have even heard uh, brother mason or before when we did one guide studies with the deuteronomy 6 and 4 of the hebrew uh, shema yisrael and we say adonai sometimes people will say hashem so they'll, they'll use anything else because at that moment that lord there is the is the hebrew it's that yahweh and so they're very respectful of that but whenever he revealed himself unto his people in the old testament he revealed them uh that name of yahweh and even even more uh the shortened form of it of just yah of just yah whenever moses and we'll go to the scripture we go to exodus chapter number three Verses 13, and I'm going to probably read down to verse number 15. But whenever Moses was on the backside of the desert and uh, he was tending his uh, father-in-law's sheep and the Lord came to him in the burning bush to speak to him about going back to Egypt to be the deliverer of his people, uh, Moses received from the Lord in that moment uh, in regards to uh, the name of God, that holy, that holy name. Uh, and as a matter of fact, uh, whenever God speaks to Moses, he conveys to him really uh, what would be more so considered a verb than a name. Whenever he spoke, I am that I am. Uh, a, a verb in the Hebrew, which actually means to exist or to become. The phrase I am that I am in the Bible is so full of meaning. We, we, we will throw out different phrases as far as for really trying to interpret 
the I am that I am that is in Hebrew, but it is really so compact with meaning and so rich that our English language really, really fails in showing the multifacets of the richness of the I am that I am. But the Bible says in Exodus 3, verse number 13, and Moses said unto God, behold, when I come unto the children of Israel and shall say unto them, the God of your fathers have sent me unto you, and they shall say to me, what is his name? What shall I say unto them? And God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am have sent me unto you. Verse 15, and God said moreover unto Moses, thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, the Lord God of your fathers the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob have sent me unto you. This is my name forever. This is my memorial unto all generations. He says, this is my memorial unto all generations. Sometimes even the, uh, the Yahweh is considered to be the memorial name of God. All right. And so whenever we see this, and I, I have a, another slide with the I am that I am also in Hebrew uh, for for your viewing pleasure. And I do did that for a particular purpose that after you see what uh, I am that I am looks like there in Hebrew in the scriptures, then if you take the Yahweh, all right, of the Old Testament, and look at the I am, I am phrase in Hebrew, you'll notice that, and if you go to the next slide, Brother Alex, you'll notice the Yah portion of Yahweh contained within the I am that I am. The Lord was already uh, giving unto Moses, uh, if you want to call it that, in, in the shortened form, his ineffable name, amen, in the I am that I am. And throughout uh, even scripture, we see in the Old Testament in our English Bibles that if you see the capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, you see Lord in capital letters, that is in reference to the ineffable name. That's in reference to that self-existent, all-sufficient one. And so they just do that for us in our English Bibles, but that is Yahweh if you were to look at it in Hebrew. And then you also have in scripture, uh, it speaks of, uh, we have all kinds of different compound names that use Jehovah, all right? Uh, Jehovah Jireh, Jehovah Ropha, all these different things. And so you see also in Scripture, the Jehovah's use. And again, in Hebrew, you would see that those four characters in Hebrew, the yud heh vav heh which is God's name that he has given unto uh, uh, Moses. And so over a period of time, even uh, the, after the writing of the Old Testaments, after they were even completed, uh, both the Jehovah and even the, the Jah of what we read in our English Bibles uh, were considered even too sacred to pronounce. And so to avoid using, because I don't want to use God's name in vain, right? And um, the, in order to avoid using that, that they decided to drop uh, and stop pronouncing the name altogether. And so many times they would substitute in that Lord or in Hebrew, the Adonai uh, in there. But uh, the jaw is a shortened form of Jehovah. Uh, case in point would be if you go to uh, the book of Psalms, chapter 68 and verse number four, 
The, the, the psalmist says, sing unto God, sing praises to his name. Extol him that rideth upon the heavens by his name, Jah, and rejoice before him. And that Jah are those, uh, that, 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 uh, that lettering, just the abbreviated lettering of the name Yahweh. And we see that abbreviated lettering uh, in many names in in English names, as we would see them, uh, the names that start with J-E many times have that abbreviated form in them in Hebrew. Names that end with the I-A-A, I-A-H, like Micah, or in uh, with the J-A-H in English have that, that abbreviated form in them. And so today, though, uh, we speak the name of, of God. We speak Jesus quite freely. Uh, we're still not needing to use God's name in vain or use it carelessly or foolishly or profanely for that matter. But we speak that name freely and unreservedly. Again, in the Old Testament, you had all these compound names for God. Again, that's those that are uh, joined with Jehovah, uh, Jehovah Nisi, Jehovah Shalom, all those things that are meaning like the Lord my provider, the Lord my healer, the Lord my banner, the Lord my shepherd, the Lord my most high. You can look at those uh, throughout the Old Testament scripture, those compound names of God. And uh, I want to recall, uh, I made mention of this, it seems like not very long ago in one of our other studies, but you had all these compound names of God, but then we come to Philippians 2 and verse number 9, and it's speaking, says, Wherefore God has also hath highly exalted him, speaking of Jesus Christ, and given him a name which is above every name. And again, that goes beyond the concept and the idea that God has given Christ a name above every name like Michael or, uh, you know, Jerry or uh, Muhammad. Uh, it goes beyond that. But above every compound name that God was known of, Jehovah Nisi, Jehovah, uh, you know, whatever, uh, Shalom, all these different names. He gave him a name above every name that Jesus sums all of that up quite quite easily and frankly as I told you before because now we don't holler out uh, Jehovah Jireh for provider we just call on Jesus we don't just holler out Jehovah Shalom uh, for peace we just call out Jesus and so it's a name that is above every name now also in the Old Testament uh, we find that there is the word, and I have a slide for this, there is the word El that's used in the Hebrew, meaning God. There is the word Elohim that's used in the Hebrew uh, that, that is meaning God. But uh, whenever we consider El alone, let's just think about El for a moment, uh, meaning God. It's the ancient name for God. Something interesting about uh, El within itself and Without being grouped with anything else, any other verbs, nothing else by itself, L is just in its a singular form. And we have, we have, uh, uh, trying to find the right word, we have evidence today from archaeology uh, concerning about how, you know, ode is this Hebrew language or this holy tongue as the Jews would talk of it. We have evidence in archaeology today that they have found in a stone that is, that is, dated as being over 4,000 years old, uh, etched in that stone are just two characters in Hebrew that are together, and it's just the Aleph and the Lamed, which is El, which is God. Over 4,000 years ago, 
uh, it is there. And no grouping with anything else, it's God in singular form over 4,000 years ago, which I think is just amazing within itself. But we also have this Elohim. God in the Old Testament uh, many times is referred to as God or as Elohim. And Elohim in Hebrew uh, is in a plural form. It's in a masculine plural form. Elohim is used more than 2,500 times in the Old Testament. And uh, some have a difficulty with the fact that it is in the plural form. But although Elohim is a plural word, it is no indication of necessarily plural persons. Okay? Even in the first uh, verse of the Bible, where the Bible says that in the beginning, God, that God there is Elohim, created the heavens and the earth. Uh, I will tell you this morning that uh, Elohim is, uh, for particularly in Hebrew, we have it in English. It's in Hebrew. We have it in English. We call it the plural of majesty, all right? Uh, other people call it honorifics. Uh, speak it in that plural form as a royal we might be. And uh, some will say, well, you know, in the English language, though, that really didn't come in existence until the Shakespearean time. And that is very true. But uh, plural of majesty and honorifics were in other languages uh, that predated before they ever showed up in the English language. And Hebrew is one of those languages. And so uh, using honorifics, uh, plural form sometimes is just a means in a way of respect. All right. It's a way of respect. But even further than that. All right. And this, and just again, just touching a little bit on Hebrew grammar, the, 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 they have a rule, and the rule is this, is that the verb in a sentence never lies. The verb in a sentence never lies. That if you have a plural like Elohim, all right, subject matter, and the verb is singular, then it is indicating to you that the subject is singular. It's speaking about one. And that's what we find then in Genesis 1 and 1 because the word created bara is in singular form, which is dictating to us that the Elohim, although a plural word, we're understanding it is singular. Amen. Notice, notice if you will, uh, what the Bible says in Exodus chapter number 6 and verse number 3. The Bible says, And I appeared unto Abraham, unto Isaac, and unto Jacob, by the name of God Almighty, or what we known as El Shaddai, but my name Jehovah, if we looked at that in the Hebrew right there, that'd be that yud heh vav heh that Yahweh, was I not known to them? Amen. Uh, some people have a problem with this. God, God revealed his name unto Moses in the desert there on the backside from the burning bush. Yet you can find Yahweh in the book of Genesis. All right, but Moses, we understand, are responsible for the first five books of the Bible. Uh, in writing them, Moses had the responsibility of taking all the oral stories of the Hebrew people and of properly organizing them and editing them in an ordinary fashion when he presented them, inspired of the Holy Ghost. And so with his revelation, he uses the Yahweh name even back in Genesis because he knew who the revelation of who that God was. And so he incorporates that even in the Hebrew Bible, amen, in the writing of the books, uh, declaring who he was, although Exodus tells us that Abraham, Isaac, and, and, and Jacob and stuff, they, did, they knew him as God Almighty, but they didn't know him by his, 
his, his honorable, uh, ineffable name, Yahweh. Amen. Going on now, when we talk about Elohim again in this idea of plural, plural form, um, there is a way that they speak in Hebrew that something can have, one thing can have several components or characteristics or attributes or facets. And so that's the way in which God is spoken of. If you even think, not just Old Testament, thinking of the compound names of God, but in the New Testament, we think about the plurality of the facets and the characteristics and attributes of God. You can read in your Bibles that God is love and that God is light and that God is holy and that God is mercy and he's grace and that he's patient and gentle and righteous and good. There's, there's verbiage in our scripture that says God is perfect, God is just, God is faithful, God is true. And so you have all these different components and attributes of a singular God. But many times they would speak to of that God in the plural form like Elohim, encompassing those many attributes and facets of that solitary God, of him being healer and deliverer and savior. We see this uh, illustrated in one way in Numbers chapter 13 and verse number 23, the concept of how one thing uh, in the Hebrew can have several components to it. We see it, it comes about even in our English Bibles. I think we can recognize it. Numbers 13 and verse 23, the spies have went into the land of the promised land to search it out and seek it out. And the Bible says in verse 23, and they came unto the brook of Eskol and cut down from thence a branch with one cluster of grapes and they bear it between two upon a staff and they brought of the pomegranates and of the figs. They brought a branch with one cluster. We're thinking in singularity and then it says of grapes. There's one cluster, but there's many components in those grapes, all right? There were, that's one cluster, but there's more than one grape on the cluster, all right? It has components. It has all of these things together that make up the one, if you will, a cluster of grapes, amen? And so it's illustrated that plurality of characteristics, that plurality of components is found in it. Here's a verse that uh, may seem interesting in Deuteronomy 5 and verse number 9. In this one sentence, there are three different Hebrew words denoting or used for God found right here. He says, I, the Lord, which would be the Yahweh, your God, the Elohim, am a jealous God. El, three different words denoting the one same almighty God found in the scripture. Now, we already talked this morning concerning the persona of God. I want to keep track of time here. And one of the, pers- the persona of God is that he is an invisible God, again, uh, an invisible spirit, unless he chooses to manifest himself in some way. And God, over time, throughout even the Old Testament and to the New, at times chose to reveal himself in different forms and different manifestations. God appeared into Abraham in a manifestation, in a form that could be recognized by the eyes of Abraham, seemingly in the form of what Abraham was, was thinking to be a man. God God appeared unto Moses in a form, of course, on the backside of the desert in a burning bush. So he manifested himself in some way. God appeared unto the elders of Israel on Mount Horeb. He manifested himself in a way to them. He appeared unto Isaiah the prophet in a vision. And so this invisible God, this invisible spirit 
can choose to manifest himself, amen, to humanity. But those things that we had along the journey in the Old Testament when he showed up to Moses, when he showed up to Abraham, they were just temporary expressions of God's invisible person. They were just temporary expressions and manifestations of God. Because again, remember, we cannot see God because he's a spirit unless he would choose to manifest himself in some way, some form, or some fashion. Amen. But the ultimate way that God has ever manifested himself and revealed himself and made himself visible and known to humanity was whenever God manifested himself in the flesh as the man Christ Jesus. God actually robed himself in flesh and became as a man. If you will, a few scriptures today. Matthew chapter 1 and verse 23, the Bible says, Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us that was spoken of that holy child Jesus that was born God with us Isaiah 9 and 6 for unto us a child is born unto us a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulders and his name shall be called wonderful counselor the mighty God the everlasting father the prince of peace now I would ask us today this concerning Isaiah's prophecy of Isaiah 9 and 6. Who is Isaiah writing of? Who is Isaiah talking about? Some would try to be just totally uh, seclusive and saying, well, he's speaking of the suffering servant and just kind of leave it at that. But I believe that you believe, I believe from even express what we have uh, conveyed and come about in Matthew and the Gospels, that Isaiah is speaking about Jesus Christ. Isaiah is talking about the Son of God. And so when we take that in mind, we understand for unto us, Jesus is born. Unto us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon Jesus' shoulders. And Jesus' name shall be called Wonderful. Jesus, the Counselor. Jesus, the Mighty God. Jesus, the Son, which is this is really good uh, for me. Uh, Jesus, who is deemed the Son, the everlasting Father. Woo! Amen. Uh, the, the, the Prince of Peace. Colossians 1 and verse 15, the Bible, and I'm just reading a portion of this. Whenever it says who, it's referring back to Jesus Christ. If you read the whole context of the Scripture, who is the image or who is the visible form of the invisible God, Jesus Christ it's referring to, the firstborn of every creature. John 14 and verse number 9, Jesus saith unto him, Have I been so long time with you? He's speaking to Philip, and yet thou hast not known me, Philip. He that have, Jesus is saying, he that have seen me have seen the Father. And how sayest thou then, shewest us the Father? Let's look again at one of the verses that we started with in 1 Timothy 3 and verse number 16. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, right? Justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preaching to the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up into glory. A powerful question to ask concerning the verse uh, of verse 16 in the 1 Timothy 3 is this. Who is each of these little segments speaking of? 
If we answer the question of who it is speaking of, I think revelation starts to come. Amen. Concerning the invisible God that revealed himself to the world. In other words, who was this fleshly manifestation? Jesus Christ. Who was justified in the spirit? And I got scriptures for this as well as anybody need them. Uh, You can talk to me. I'll give them Jesus Christ. Who was seen of angels? Jesus Christ. Who was preached unto the Gentiles? Jesus Christ. Who was believed on in the world? Jesus Christ. Who was received up into glory? Jesus Christ. And so when we ask the who of all these different segments, the subject is Jesus Christ. And yet the Apostle Paul conveys the verse of 1 Timothy 3.16. He says it was God was manifested in the flesh. Yet we know all these things is the revelation and is speaking of. And we find other scriptures that Jesus Christ is the one that is the fleshly manifestation. He's the one that was justified. He's the one Jesus was. And yet Paul says God because these are not two separate uh, things God manifested himself in the flesh as a man, the Lord Jesus Christ. So all the Godhead, and I'll come here to a close real quickly. All the Godhead. Godhead sometimes is a tricky word for some. But let's put it into these terms. All right? Because these are the terms in which it really speaks of. All the Godhead or all the divinity. All the divinity is found, the scripture says, in Jesus Christ. All right, Um, Jesus is not just a God or just a portion of God. He is the fullness and the completeness in visible form revealed God. The Bible says, and I'll close with this uh, verse, I suppose, uh, and we'll continue next week. Colossians 2, verses 8 and 9, it says, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit. After the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. For in him, speaking of Christ Jesus, dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead or the divinity bodily. In him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead or the divinity bodily. Amen. Jesus Christ was the perfect expression and manifestation and revelation of the invisible spirit God upon the word. Amen. And for purposes, our monotheism purposes is more than just uh, for apostolics and Bible believers that would really search the scriptures. Our monotheism goes beyond just one God. It is one God that expressed himself, namely, in one person. Jesus Christ, our Lord, in him dwelleth all the fullness of that divinity or that Godhead bodily in the man Christ Jesus. We'll pick back up from there next week. I have a feeling we'll probably be here for another three weeks. I'm just forecasting that probably pretty easily. All right. But that's all right. Amen. We need to know who he is. Sometimes we just blab, oh, yeah, God, I believe in what we need to know. All right? We need to know uh, who he is and the precedence that we have of Scripture for who he is. Amen. I'm going to pray today that as we're going through these next few weeks, uh, that if you have been one that have struggled sometimes 
uh, with the understanding of the Godhead that the Lord would help you with a spirit of revelation and enlightenment. All right. Sometimes you got to wade into the scriptures. Right. Pray. Let that same author of the book that you may have on board by having received the Holy Ghost help you with your understanding because John said that it would lead us and guide us into all truth. Amen. Father, I come to you today. I'm thankful, Lord, for your spirit. I'm thankful, Lord. Thank you for listening. If you would like more information about our services and activities, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter with the username FACMC. Again, that's FACMC. Thank you and have a blessed day.